Hello and welcome to this week's Companies and Markets show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I am joined today by Ian Smith, Companies Editor. How are you, Ian? Not too bad, John. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, the sun's out. The result what? season is winding down. Life couldn't be better. I brought my sunglasses in for the first time. I saw you wearing them earlier. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Optimistically. So, yeah, indeed. It got a bit dark after about five minutes walking sure to the station, but I took them off. Okay, and uh, Jonas Crossland, how are you, Jonas? I'm very well, thanks, John. Good. Yep. And uh, you've written the cover feature. I have indeed, yes. Which is yes. Uh, the property forecast. The real estate market. We'll have a look at that in a minute to get a sense sure. of where the UK listed real estate players are and their prospects. But let's start, in with seven days. It's been an interesting week. I mean, the big story that's dominating pretty much every news outlet, news radio, is Tata Steel. Exactly right. And we saw in the budget the government uh, willing to support the oil and gas industry, um, which is obviously struggling with low commodity prices. And the question is, will it support the steel industry to the same extent? Uh, and now David Cameron has flown back, I think from his holiday. To, Where was he? Anywhere nice? I think he might have been in Lanzarote, but I might have been... Lanzarote? Uh, I don't, yeah, I might have been bad. Right, not nowhere nice then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, the Prime Minister is back to deal with this crisis. There are a lot of jobs uh, at stake, obviously. Yeah, it's incredibly serious. And the big question is the government has really been trying to find a buyer for the um, Tata Steel plant in Wales. Uh, but it's incredibly difficult. This business is losing a lot of money per day. Firstly... They tried to get the company just to delay the sale to kind of guarantee that they would kind of keep the business until a suitable buyer can be found. Now the narrative is very much shifted to will they nationalise it or not? Predictably, Labour have said they should nationalise it in the interest of the jobs and in the interest of having steel made in this country uh, for our construction needs. But it looks like although the government have said all options are open, they keep saying that's very much the mantra of the week. That It looks like they've rolled back a bit from the uh, nationalisation of this loss-making plant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because this, I guess, was an asset that once belonged to the country that was privatised many, many years ago, along with lots of other businesses that were privatised. But, of course, it was chorus for, for many years before it was bought by... By Tata. So, yeah, and it's, it's an interesting one. Um, it's exactly the kind of thing that this government is obviously not wanting to do. Well, I guess, I guess it believes in a free, the free market economy. Yeah. Exactly. I suppose if you look at it in the context, the government has had to pause its uh, sale of Lloyd shares. This taxpayer still owns a portion of Lloyd's. Uh, it still owns, uh, you know, the vast majority of uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. And what the, this government would dearly like to do is reduce the amount of state ownership of uh, public assets. Mm. Um, and it doesn't really want to increase that by nationalising this part of Tata. No, political hot potato. Though. Definitely. So, I mean, I've heard some very... I mean, listening to the radio this morning, what the employees of Tata Steel in uh, in Wales would like to do is for the UK to buy steel from them for a start. So, I mean, I heard this morning that apparently the MOD had recently bought um, uh, a, a huge amount of steel from the Swedish steel company for the MOD. We still have a lot of Chinese steel being dumped onto the UK market. And we, you know, we had anti-dumping duties uh, imposed on the ceramics industry. Yeah, as we wrote about this week. As we results. wrote about this week with Churchill China. Exactly um, right. And, and I, th- I think, you know, what a lot of people in Wales would like to see is the same policies being applied to steel. Exactly right. And that's something uh, that's been very much part of the public debate over this week. Uh, why hasn't the government pushed for that? Is it because there is a big push under our current Chancellor George Osborne to get close to China? Is that why um, there's been reticence to confront them when it comes to the steel industry? It's probably outside of our remit to conclude on that. We're getting a bit political here. Let's move on to buy to let landlords. 
Because that's not political <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> These are all completely politically neutral issues. Oh, God. Politics and stock market. Not a happy combination. But um, landlords. This has been happening for a while that obviously the, the buy to landlords had a great run. The the, uh, the businesses within the sector, but also uh, the lenders to this sector had had an absolutely brilliant run. That structural shift from uh, owner occupancy to renting uh, is not going to kind of turn back. But there has been some kind of deceleration to that and, and the policymakers obviously up the stamp duty on buy to let something that yeah, Jonas been covering and there's been rejections to tax relief uh, and now they are trying to uh, tighten the underwriting standards of people that uh, make buy to let uh, mortgage loans so it's just very much part of policymakers pushing back on this industry that has fair amount of heat within it. I don't feel mm. the way in, James. I think there's some unintended consequences here because, say, a married couple can probably afford to rent a house that they certainly couldn't afford to buy. So the idea that if the amateur or buy-to-let landlord backs off, there's going to be loads more apartments and houses on the market for first-time buyers. It's just, it's just a, an illusion. It's just not going to happen. Funny enough, on the day that we went to press, the uh, the CML, the Council of Mortgage Lenders, actually put out a press release talking about the private rented sector. It seemed to me that they were very much uh, in support of the need for uh, a healthy private rented sector for, for very much the reasons that, that you talk about. One, you know, people can't afford to buy when they're new to the workplace necessarily, but there's lots of reasons why people need to rent. If they move around for their job or, you know, divorced couples. Um, often, mm. you know, we'll end up in private rented accommodation. And yeah, I mean, it, you know, it does strike me that this this whole idea that, you know, that the, the la- private landlords are somehow stymieing the ability of people to buy just doesn't hold water. No, and, and the slack is supposed to be taken up by the um, private sector and also local authority building, which isn't going to happen because... The housing association has been told to reduce rents by 1% and they're really taking a, a step back and saying, look, is it worth building these things? And the local authorities are being squeezed because their budgets are being cut and the private rented sector, which I think legal and general people like that are starting to move into, possibly will take up the slap. But we're talking three, four, five years. But we, we heard in the budget, because that whole build to rent, is uh, an area that we've written about before mm. um, and some people thought that larger landlords would be exempted from some of the uh, more painful changes but we, we heard in the budget that perhaps that wasn't going to be the case you know the, the government doesn't seem to be quite as much behind the um, creation of an institutional kind of landlord sector as the people might have hoped well the money's got to come in from somewhere i mean the the, the pension funds are quite happy to well, quite capable of putting money in, but they haven't got the expertise, so they're going to have to work as a joint partner with with a construction company or a property company. That will happen. Um, I think that uh, the idea that if you became a company, you weren't um, subject to the new um, stamp duty, that that obviously, that was a fear, but that didn't happen in the budget. But they're, they're still squeezing... Uh, Ultimately, and we're getting back to politics here, it's a jolly nice way of raising money. Yeah, and, and you know, as I write in my editorial this week, you know, nobody sheds a tear for the uh, the rapacious landlords out there, when, when in fact, you know, all the evidence suggests that that is not actually the case. Mm. You know, I, I found a, somebody across a survey called the Private Landlords Survey, and, and as far as I could make out, the last one took place in 2010. You know, but the vast majority of, of property in the UK, rented property in the UK, comes from private landlords. The vast majority of those private mm. landlords have just one property to rent. 
They run them very efficiently, very professionally, even though, you know, there is this tendency to call them amateur landlords as if to suggest they weren't doing the job properly, which is simply not the case at all. And, and actually, you know, a lot of the time, from, from what I can gather, tenants are very difficult to manage. And, I, and, and the law is in favour of a tenant these days. I would say, just to give some kind of balance to that picture, th- there are examples where... The, for example, if you're a landlord and you haven't put the right fire alarm in your house, there's now a, currently a government policy that will help to fund uh, authorities to put one into your house. There's definitely a feeling that uh, the current regulatory balance has favoured landlords and some of these tax relief changes and stamp duty changes is resetting the balance. But I would say when it comes to this buy to let stuff in the Prudential Regulation Authority, obviously they do have an obligation to make sure that the lending that's being done is being done on a prudent basis as one of their core remits. So although I have very much painted it as part of a kind of uh, swing back against buy to let, I think at the same time, it's very much part of their job to say there's been a huge amount of growth in buy to let mortgages. And are all the players that are making these loans robust enough you know, because we've seen a lot of the smaller players come in. Uh, and, you know, it's probably not a bad thing that you have a regulator that is assessing the quality of some of these loans, which in this low rate environment are very easy to make. Yeah, no, fair enough. Can't argue with that. But let's look at this in, you know, another way. A lot of these, uh, what we call challenger banks, are going after this buy-to-let space. So again, this well, is that's a, my point, I think. A, a po- yeah. But, it, but get, you could argue then it's a policy that, that disproportionately favours larger lenders who go after the owner-occupier market rather than the smaller lenders who, who go for buy-to-let. Exactly right. And as uh, and as the same was the case with the um, change from a banking levy that was um, kind of ta- based on a balance sheet level of assets to a profits tax, which will disproportionately hit the kind of challenger lenders. So it's just another thing that's going to um, slow down the progress of some of these challenger lenders, which is exactly what um, the, the, both the Conservatives and, and, and the Labour Party have, have said, that they want to try and increase the competition uh, within banking. But mm. the, definitely the direction of policy is not doing that at the moment. And I've got to say, you know, I mean, the other thing that is spoken about is that policies uh, aim to make it a little bit more difficult to become a private landlord um, are because it's private landlords that are causing the UK property market to become overheated. And I looked at the numbers and I just don't think this is true. You know, they, okay, so there has been a rise in buy-to-let lending over the past five years, but compared to ten years ago, it's kind of exactly where it was. You know, I just don't see the stats supporting the story out there. No, I mean the only thing that's boosted house prices, apart from the fact that mortgages are cheap, is the simple fact that, that there aren't enough houses being built. Indeed. Supply and demand. Indeed. Indeed. And part of that problem, as you alluded to earlier, Jonas, is that in terms of the social component Mm. of the housing market, it just doesn't exist anymore. And actually, that echoes what George Osborne is saying now about wanting to create, you know, the ability to own your home, what Thatcher did in the 1980s with the, you know, right to buy. Yeah, well, in the 60s, local authorities were building half a million houses a year. Now, as a nation, we're building about 160,000. Yeah, I think I think supply is the problem here. But yeah. it, it, but part of that house price rise has been government policies that have encouraged home ownership. So you kind of can't subtract subtract <laughs> government influence from the rise in house prices. God, we've got so political again. <laughs> Let's get away from politics. Let's talk about property more Ooh, generally, Jonas. Okay. Let's move on to the cover feature, the property forecast. Um, and, and we're moving away from residential largely sure. here, uh, towards the, the essentially the commercial property sectors that are represented on the UK stock market. How are things looking? These sectors have done okay in, uh, in recent years. Yeah, they've done well. I mean, every, everybody caught a cold um, earlier this year, but largely as a result of the stock market falling. People were starting to worry about 
um, the you know the traditional real estate companies that were um, had a hand in developing residential, especially in London, and they thought that was a worry. And there are signs that obviously that top end of the market has slowed down because of the stamp duty and stamp levies as well. I mean, you but, mentioned some some amazing stories some from some of the big guys that are developing big residential schemes uh, in places like Ells Court, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really. I mean, the, I, I couldn't believe the stat that you published a few <laughs> weeks back um, about the level of interest in some of these, these properties. Well, it's just died a death. I mean, it's not quite so much the money. I mean, if these things are going up 5% a year and you're paying £2 million, it doesn't really matter if you're going to have to pay a bit more stamp duty. But the worry is that some of these properties, are there, well, supply is coming on big time. There, there used to be a, a constraint of supply. There's about 750,000 flats and apartments. Well, this, I mean, this is interesting because we just talked about a lack of supply, but that's across the UK as a whole. Yeah. And we're talking about London, where I guess in response to the residential property boom, a lot of supply is coming on street. Yeah. Well, you've got the, the great, yeah, I mean, apart from Earl's Court, you've got Nine Elms, the new Covent Garden. But the, the emphasis now is spreading out where, so that people who, you know, used to aspire to live in the inner city bits, very inner city, are now quite happy to commute 20 minutes 30 minutes from mile end yes the east end revolution yeah i mean it has been quite incredible how previously unfashionable areas have become fashionable and that's helped uh, say companies are doing small office space like workspace they've got some very nice places in new cross and uh, east london they buy up old warehouses and get house builders to build the houses and in return, they just get a nice bit of um, small office space. Mm. But again, I mean, Workspace Share Price, which you've published in this feature, took an absolute battering at the start of this year. And I guess that yeah. must be related to this this fear that the, the, the residential component of what they do is not going to be perhaps as profitable as they once thought it was. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, you know, the, I think investors have taken the headlines and, and sort of, as usual, overreacted. If you look at uh, St. Modwin, uh, that's trading at 30% discount to NAV uh, on account of the fact that it has a big exposure, well, about 6% of the book, to uh, the Nine Elm site, the new Covent Garden. Mm. Well, as, as, as we pointed out, if you gave that away for nothing, it would reduce net asset value by 10%, so there'd still be a 20% discount, which is absurdly cheap. So sentiment is taking some of these companies below where they really should be yeah. trading. Yeah, it's a reaction, the overreaction, um, and, and we feel that there's there's plenty of mileage in there. Supply, well, if you look at, uh, say, big boxes, consumers are changing their habits. They want click and collect. They want it delivered. Huge amount of demand for, for big boxes. And after the recession, basically, there was, no, there was no construction at all for five years. And it's only now beginning to come back. So big boxes. I mean, we talk. So we're talking about here essentially uh, retail distribution hubs, mainly aimed at uh, supporting online trading. Yeah, yeah. Primarks, all that. But even even the yeah. Well, or or, or, um, or Tesco even. Okay, so so these guys are doing incredibly well. This is yep. a hot area of the market. Yep. The sun is shining. Yeah, and unlike in the previous boom, they're they're sort of kind of keeping their development arm under control, only doing prelets. And the real growth in the next couple of years is going to be from uh, rental increases rather than asset value increases. Okay. So some other interesting sectors that you point out uh, that, that really are doing doing well, going great guns. Uh, let's start with student accommodation. Yeah, well, the cap came off um, overseas students last or this, no, yeah, last year. Um, and, and people like Unite have, 
are, are really booked up for the the academic year two thousand and what September sixteen to July seventeen. They're full up, and there's a worry that you know, the, the global economy might um, have an effect on the number of student numbers. But when you consider the amount of money that they charge rich students or students with rich parents in in you know the Far East, Russia, China. Uh, this are going to come over. Mm, absolutely. And we've got three players there. Unite, Empiric, and GCP Student Living, which is a bit newer. Yeah. Nice ticker. Digs. <laughs> Digs. <laughs> clever. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. Universities have been on to this for a while in terms of yeah. the amount of money they can make relatively from over to overseas students compared to domestic absolutely. students. You know, they've very much milked that. So, yeah, it's interesting that property uh, companies are catching up with that. I mean, they've been doing it for years, but... But I guess, you know, in recent... I mean, Unite, I remember this, you know, looking at this about 10 years ago, and there were worries. It was quite new then, mm. worries about the model, you know, whether there would be the demand for this kind of you know, relatively high-end student property, but they've yeah. been proven right. Yes, I mean, I've been around a couple of them, and they, they're amazing. I mean, they have cookers in, in, in the small um, studios that, that the students occupy, that uh, the induction cookers, so they can't set fire to themselves, and little things like that, and they can go downstairs and sort of sit down and plug in and use all their handheld devices and there's a small bar there there's a canteen it's far cry from the good old days yeah yeah well i my my student halls was apparently based on the design of a swedish prison (laughs) breeze block walls it was uh it was beautiful yeah it's gone now Uh, in favor of some blocks aimed at overseas students yeah it's uh it's the way that market has gone there you go um student accommodation sun is shining Yep. Uh, medical centres. This is a really interesting Ooh. one. Yeah, well, about 70% of all doctor's surgeries are not fit for purpose. They're usually sort of uh, yeah, converted semi-detached houses. If you go to a modern medical centre, and there's only about 700 of them in the country, um, they have facilities there. They'll have a pharmacy, physiotherapy, x-rays. Diagnostics, mi- potentially, as well. Diagnostics, ma- minor injuries, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the people who go in there will probably be uh, older. And the point here is that if they go to their local medical centre and get more than just a, a seat in a doctor's surgery, they won't go to a- A&E departments. So it's solving a genuine problem within the NHS, which is the, the referrals to hospitals obviously put pressure on the system. Yeah, one pound, every one pound spent on a, a new medical centre saves five pounds on the NHS. Incredible. So so really a boom market for the guys playing there. So we've got Primary Health Properties, Assura, Medicex. Yeah. Um, and they got their rents paid by the government. The government, yeah. It's, so, it's bomb-proof. Big, big yielding. Um, so yeah. almost, you, know, you could almost argue these are kind of like... When we talk about the bondification of equities trend, these are kind of kind of it. They are the pioneers, yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, let's let's touch one more sector. I mean, we won't talk about offices because sure. it's a bit boring. Um, <laughs> so we spend our life in them. Uh, tourism, I, I, I'm always fascinated by the companies with exposure to tourism. But there's one that we all like, I've always liked, Shaftesbury. Have you done the Shaftesbury Walk? Uh, twice now. Yeah, <laughs> I've done it once. So have I. <laughs> it was raining when I did it and I had a hole in my shoe. Yeah, uh, it's it's just astonishing. Um, the the number of it, it's it's very close to being bomb proof again because the 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 demand for for premier space, whether you're a you know restaurant uh, or a sales outlet, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, there's a waiting list, um, so the tenants tend, tend to stay put, and during the recession. Um, well, if you're Chinese, Russian, whatever, 
what recession? They still come piling in. Mm. Crossrail's coming in in a couple of years' time, so that's going to increase the number of tourists there anyway. In, in terms of, sorry to kind of yeah. pick up on you calling it a bomb-proof, uh, but I suppose one of the challenges of a, a business like that is is the impact of kind of a terrorist attack right in the heart of, you know, our, our uh, the shopping capital of London. We had one. Well, exactly, exactly right. So, do you, do you think that it's very resilient to these kind of attacks? I think I think the risk factor is probably diminished in the UK because we've had forty or fifty years fighting terrorism in uh, with the IRA, and we've got a, a pretty good hand on it. Touch wood, but there, there hasn't been a major sort of terrorist incident here for. Uh, letter what was it seven seven. seven 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 yeah which was pretty pretty severe i mean yeah, you know that was that was pretty bad i mean you know but it's nine years ago it is nine years ago and Shaftesbury has obviously thrived since then essentially what it has is irreplaceable you couldn't you couldn't replicate it because it's all about the location yeah and, and you, it's extraordinary yeah and you can't expand there because it's most of the stuff's listed buildings anyway you can only apply for um a, a sort of a refurbishment um, application and that's what it does doesn't it to keep the rents ticking over to sure. keep the rents ticking up is to, to actually keep re repurposing these properties turning offices to resi again but yeah i mean it's a fantastic business we've always liked that and if you want to see uh, some of these properties we we, uh, we have a video on our website that kind of looks at you know a couple of them and that's true uh, yeah, yeah, yeah talks about, about the development of some of these businesses yeah, yeah Stephen did that yeah. so we've got carnaby street Seven Dials, Chinatown, yeah, central central London Prime, absolutely. The other one, I I, I, miss, I must admit, I have spent many time at these places. Secure Income Reads. Now oh, you would yeah. not think of that as a tourist play, but <laughs> it is because it essentially owns the the ground upon which uh, attractions like Legoland and Alton Towers and such like are built. And these these places, again, if you've been to them, as I have with my family many times, are always rammed. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a complex setup that one because obviously you had a a company with a small market capitalization and a huge um, investment portfolio but it was held through a, a lot of controlled companies before that but basic bottom line is that they they're building it up and they've they've they had a certain amount of um, constraints on their on their debt as to how they could pay dividends but now they've paid down their debt uh, the dividends are coming on stream probably in August, September this year. And I think they're looking at about 4% plus on a dividend yield. And that'll just be the start. Essentially, it's an annuity. Yes. Yeah. These rents are not going anywhere. Exactly right. Um, you know, you're, they're on a 25 year lease. And uh, you've got uh, Merlin Entertainments, um, uh, which is, yeah. And the other one is the, I think it's the fifth largest private hospital group in the world. I think it's Australian, and and hospitals aren't going to go away either. Just like the uh, just like we've been talking about the medical centres in the UK, exactly. Very similar proposition. So anyway, so actually, UK property. I mean, offices always the worries about oversupply, overdevelopment. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's always going to and and obviously retail um, properties. The same same concerns hit those, which affects people like land securities. Yeah, yeah. Which land? I I, th- I think. Um, that when they came unstuck in the last uh, in the in the crash is because they simply had a, a large development arm that wasn't pre-let, uh, and when the value of those properties was downgraded, they started to breach covenants, and then all the alarm bells went off, mm. and obviously the banks weren't going to call in the loans because they wouldn't get them back. But now they've they've used a lot of uh, other ways of issuance or share placings as well, and most of them now only. Um, develop land on a pre-let basis 
So the risk factor has definitely gone up the scale. So essentially what you're saying is the, the UK listed property sector much better manage, managed in terms of the, the, the risk exposure than it has been in the past. Yeah. Doesn't mean, yeah, it doesn't mean to say they won't get carried away again, but I don't think so this time. Not right now? No. Uh, and I mean, looking at this, uh, this uh, little chart you've put together here, a lot of them are trading at uh, quite substantial discounts as well to NAV. Yeah. Well, if you took that chart six months ago, um, quite a few of them were trading at a premium. Um, they've taken a bash. Uh, now, taking a bash like that and trading at a discount is normally um, well, one of two things, either a precursor of a crash or uh, an opportunity to buy in. Uh, mm. Now, if you don't think there's going to be a crash, could be an opportunity to buy in. You have to be selective, but um, it's worth an opportunity there anyway. But as we say, there are businesses that we've talked about in certain sectors that give you this annuitized yeah, yeah. Stream, which is which is uh, which is uh, kind of the holy grail yeah. at the moment. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Jonas. That's Pleasure. been uh, absolutely tremendous. It's a great feature. Um, lots of lots of really good ideas for income seekers there. Um, should we quickly turn to results before we wrap up? What's been interesting this week? Next, I thought it was fascinating. Next, as uh, typical of a retailer, it's all about the outlook. And uh, what was interesting here was uh, Lord Wolfson, the head of Next, being uh, quite uh, negative about what 2016 would be given the uncertainty in the global economy, that we haven't seen the growth in real earnings that you might expect uh, given the increase in um, employment. And, you know, in terms of the output, as we know, the output, the economic output hasn't risen to the extent that people were hoping it would do so he's been quite pessimistic he has a reputation for this <laughs> he, sh- he sure <laughs> he does, <really> does. <laughs> and whether or not you believe him uh, obviously a fair amount of people in the market did and the shares did respond quite badly to the outlook as they tend to do one thing i would uh, say about that share price now is it doesn't look very nice but get, you know what does next do a lot of buy back its own shares exactly right I mean, it doesn't look very nice right now in terms of the graph that we have on the page. No, it looks horrible. <laughs> it looks pretty horrible. Um, but yeah, they they have they have the kind of buyback uh, regime, and also there's the question as to whether this is unduly negative from Lord Olson. He uh, has a reputation. He really does. I mean, when I covered retail for for many years, you know, they would always put out, I wouldn't say bearish, but you know, conservative guidance, and they would always beat it. Always beat it, and the share price just kept going and going and going. I would take it, not necessarily with a pinch of salt, but he's he's a, he's a canny operator, old yeah. Wilson. And were we have to uh, were we to have a cold winter, there'd be a lot of those trench coats being sold, mm. and we'd have the reverse of last year. So yeah, it's one of those where you have to make a call, really. Yeah, maybe he's being. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, the retail economy by all accounts is not quite as booming as it has been recently um hey one one retailer that's, that's suffering uh, to my mind unsurprisingly is game digital fascinating company it went into administration back in 2012 yeah. was it and then yeah. it, and then it kind of came back on the market a couple of years later yeah well with um, with the with the word digital attached on the end of it, it was game group now yeah, it's game digital well there's a lot of uh formerly non-digital organs that are turning digital john yeah but yeah. i mean i mean i mean i look at this business i think really because you know and, and i did when it came back to market um because uh nothing seems to have changed yeah i mean when you see the write-up around lower sales of consoles and older games together with weaker christmas footfall totally. it just <laughs> so been 
there before. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, really? Oh, my God, please. And I don't know if you've walked past one of these shops recently, but now it also looks a bit like a cash converter. So there's like a, a load of old, you know, second-hand mobile phones in the window. It's like, really? You Come get, on, please. The idea that you'll make a compelling growing business model out of something where you hock old games in there. But they did have, to be fair to them, they have a lot of ideas around uh, mobile games and how they'll monetize that. Yeah. But it's obviously the core business that is suffering, you know, that is more than offsetting that Indeed. On, the, on the bad side. A lot of cash on the balance sheet, I noticed, which is, uh, I guess, a saving grace. Um, but then this terrible three words came up in this statement trade credit insurance trade credit insurance almost did for some of the best retailers in the UK at the height of the uh, the crunch and uh, yeah I mean it's terrifying Watch terrifying out. if you if you, you know I was there I was there man <laughs> and uh, trade credit insurance was uh, was yeah that was a killer and uh, you just don't want to see those words when you're looking at a retailer <laughs> exactly handle with care <laughs> handle with care okay so what else have we got Ian? Kingfisher uh, yeah more retail um, yeah, sorry, more retail, but you know, well followed right. company, um, and uh, yeah, there's not as much to choose from this week. It's starting to come down a bit, but uh, Kingfisher, it is a bit of a continuous continuation of the story that we've seen in recent times. Screwfix is doing incredibly well, growing stores. B and Q, the reduction in stores actually did hit the gross margin here. Uh, in, in France, they think there might start to be a bit of positive um, news coming from the kind of uh, the building sector and the home improvement sector. But that's still suffering in terms of retail profit falling in, in the Castorama and Brico Depot brands mm, that they operate in mm. France. Well, I mean the whole the whole screwfix shift. You know, I mean it's kind of a it's a no brainer. They must have read my editorial of three years ago. Why would you go into Kingfisher to buy most? DIY materials exactly right. you just I, wouldn't I was just having this conversation with my father actually who's currently renovating my sister's house down on the south coast and he just you know waxes lyrical about screw fix and the approach you go in they have absolutely everything because of the way they do the ordering it works very well for kind of that part time builder or the people that's doing kind of semi-serious DIY work yeah. you, they have a huge amount in stock there's never something out of stock it, it seems to be a business model that caters very well to the home improvement market as it exists now there's another one called Tool Station that occasionally came, but they got bought, didn't it? By it was founded by the same guy. I think it got bought. He got bought by one of the building uh, products uh, guys. It was Travis Perkins, maybe. Or mm. um, that's a lookalike, isn't it? Kind of screwed. Lookalike. Look yeah. it, it was set up by the same guy. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's the model. The model. You know, the, the the retail mug punter is kind of not as easily exploitable as they perhaps once were. I, it, there seems to be a wider trend in retail that we're all getting much more used to very ugly outlets that do the, exactly what we want for them. Right? If you look at the rise of the um, the discount food retailer, mm. we are comfortable in now going into a shop that just has like a crate of um, tins of baked beans. We don't mind grabbing it out of the packet because that means it saves us a bit of money. You know, shops don't have to be the kind of fancy experience that they used to be. No, and also you can do a lot more research online to know that actually you're getting something that you need for the right price. Um, Let's talk one more uh, result, AJ Barr, because that obviously ties in with the sector focus, which is about the sugar tax. AJ Barr being a soft drinks manufacturer, uh, famous for Iron Brew. Um, which is obviously one of the sugariest drinks on the market. Yeah, I think it, we have the stat here about how much, how many teaspoons, nine teaspoons of sugar in a can, a thir- 330 milliliter can of uh, Iron Brew. Seems like a lot of sugar. <laughs> it seems like a lot. <laughs> Definitely picks us up before the podcast, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it, funnily enough, what, what they are not th- too worried at the moment. They came out with a very bullish statement about um, the sugar levy, and they think that uh, the lower and no sugar 
sugar products, which currently is about 40% of their revenue, uh, is going to increase as a proportion. I think it's going to be about two thirds by 2018. So they think that a huge amount of their business, they are kind of getting into that sweet spot. It's not a sweet spot of uh, low and no sugar. Um, so they, they are positive, And I think that... Um, yeah, the, the the market responded well to this, but then obviously they suffered in the budget. So we'll, I think we remain to be convinced a bit, but they're saying the right things. We're a bit neutral at the moment just because it's still a big part of their business. You know, trying to convince people that the, the maker of Iron Brew is going to be completely fine with the introduction of a sugar levy. Um, it would have to take a bit of a change in consumer habits. But then we're seeing that change in consumer habits anyway, and we've written about that a fair amount. So it'll be the ability of the management to manage that change. Yeah, Fever Tree, I noticed that. Uh have quite a lot of sugar in their their uh, tonic products as well um also they appeared in the director dealings uh page as well they've been uh, a bit of a sale by uh, some of the directors i think they say to make way for for new investors which is quite plausible um but the shares have kind of they're really punchily rated they've come off a little bit yeah and we've talked about that i think on this podcast before they've been punchily rated for a while but they're growing so fast and they're making really sensible deals with um airlines and other kind of major areas where they can sell um and, and i think they have a variety of um sh- sugar levels in their drinks as well you know just from mm. walking around the supermarket you can see there's there are lower there's healthier options so uh, you, you can't imagine that it'll kill them well, I'm going to start. I'm going to start talking about gin again. Let's not I? Because start. I don't care. I don't care about the tonic. I don't care about the tonic. I don't get this. It's all about the gin. <laughs> Let's not have another discussion of gin. Um, and just finally, I suppose, in terms of uh, just to turn back to news, uh, just to finish off, Premier Foods has been one of the stories of the week. Oh yes. Uh, just yes. in terms of uh, a bit of a, a, a not kind of so much a bidding war, a curious. Uh, a, pr- a set of approaches from the US spice maker McCormick, um, which has has made three successive bids uh, um, in in recent weeks, and the latest one is sixty five p per share. Now there was some criticism of Premier Foods last week. There's um, been some criticism of Premier Foods for years. From <laughs> <me>. <laughs> there were some specific criticisms made about whether how open the management was to the approach from McCormick and how it had robust previous offers, and it also tied up with this strategic. Um, partnership uh, made with Nissin, which is a Japanese maker of instant noodles and other products, which took a strategic 17% shareholding uh, in the group at the end of March. Uh, and there was a fair amount of kind of back and forth between uh, the media and the company about the taking of that stake, how it impacts on the company, the, no- the management's knowledge of the discussions that were going on behind the scenes, but c- crucially how uh, much engagement there really was with McCormick. Now, following the 65p per share offer, Premier Foods has now said that they're going to set up meetings with McCormick to go through some of the documentation that the um, that the US group were, want. And, and specifically, some of that refers to trading, material contracts, but also, crucially, it refers to um, the pension scheme. Now, there's quite a big pension scheme at Premier Foods relative to the size of the well, company. I can imagine it's been around for a long time. It's something exactly you have to right. look out for with these companies that have been trading for many, many years. Yeah, and as we've talked about before, it can be a bit of a hurdle to M&A, and it definitely is in this case, until they find out more about it. Now, the accounting deficit, the deficit in the pension scheme on an accounting basis wasn't very much at the last time of counting, but as we've talked about before, the contributions that companies pay into schemes is not actually based on that valuation. It's oh, actually, Connie, and you're going back, to, you're going, regressing here to your previous job. T- turning back the years. <laughs> uh, but just to say, there might be a lot of uh, more contributions that need to be made on yeah. a slightly more stringent basis to the pension scheme so it's understandable that McCormick wanted to look at that while it might not be a big hurdle to the deal but yeah it, 
Either you look at it that the management is playing a very canny game of playing hard to get with McCormick and driving that um, per share offer up, or you think that they've kind of played this really badly and McCormick are just going ahead anyway. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, looked, we had a quick look at the share price. I mean, it, you know, if you look at it, if you go back over five years, I mean, it's, it's depressed. Despite a 70-odd percent rise this week? I mean, yeah, it, or, yeah, even more than that. I think it's almost doubled, uh, you know, since the kind of pr- all this before this stuff all kicked off. So, yeah, it's one of those where you don't look at a weak share price. No, think. no, but it's almost, you know, it's almost option money, I guess. You know, if you're a long-suffering shareholder, hold out for a better deal. That was behind Standard Life Investments, obviously, a shareholder within it. You, you'll have a lot of long, long-suffering shareholders that have kept the faith that are now holding out for the best that they can get. Mm. And we're talking to companies in trouble. Um, I mean, let's, let's pick up on one more news story, Jonas, because I know this is a story dear to your heart. Hornby, oh. which, um, yeah, mm. which um, despite you giving them enormous amounts of money, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. has run into trouble recently. <sighs> so, I mean, the story is that essentially they're, they're breaching banking covenants. And the Fat Controller Barclays, actually, thank you, has uh, given them some breathing space in terms of waiving some of their covenant tests on and the loans uh, that it's made to them for March, I believe. So there is some breathing space for them to sort out, you know, just to kind of stay afloat. But, you know, the trading trends are still where they were. So there's, it's mm. a company that's still in a lot of problems. Model trains. I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like the toy for the youth of today, Jonas. I mean, you, what well, do you think? No, that's, that's very true, actually. I mean, <laughs> well, when you, uh, a, a small little sort of uh, standard flying Scotsman costs about 120 quid and then you've got to get bits and pieces inside it and then you've got to buy a, 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 a computerised control system, which is 300 quid. And they also... But you've got to you've got to remember they also do <laughs> airfix as well. Oh yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, mean, of course, I see all the kids building those these Well, days. exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just died a death. But, but you spent a lot of money on a train set, didn't you? I yeah, I spent over, well thousands on a train not, set. Not for you. No, well, not ostensibly. Well, <laughs> it was for you, really, wasn't it? Well, it is. Yeah, it is. Yes, <laughs> I didn't have one when I was small. But yeah, everything's ridiculous expensive, and you know, those sort of prices, you'd think they they'd build up a trading margin and do it well end of the line end of the yeah, line perhaps yeah, you know, last, last word from a disgruntled commuter <laughs> 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 okay thank you Ian thank you Jonas um, what else we've got in this week's magazine um, I said sex folks on uh, sugary beverages uh, algae hall uh, with his cheap small cap screen did 20% last year worth a look the secondary feature is fascinating it's about artificial intelligence and, and what this potentially means for, for the economy as a whole and also for investors and we've got some so we review a number of books on the subject there and in, in fact we've got some uh, really kind of uh, some high-end fund managers here uh, Nick Train reviewed one of the books for us of Linzel Train and he says don't discount this it's definitely something you should have in the back of your mind and he's a big trend guy so I mean, the rise of robots is actually something I touched on in my taking stock this week just in terms of you know technological advancements and how much you think that will improve economic output uh, and it's the there's been a recent book that's been very well followed by US economists saying that the inventions from the 100 years to 1970 had an impact on economic output that nothing since has had. Mm. But, you know, a lot of people are putting faith in the rise of the robots to kind of drive a kind of increase in productivity that will help. Well, you mentioned, you, you, you compare Twitter to the automobile and, uh, and Twitter doesn't really match up. And in fact, there, there has uh, Microsoft let an AI loose on Twitter this week and apparently it started swearing at everyone, turned to a racist and, uh, and essentially became Hitler within half an hour. <laughs> so, so yeah, maybe, maybe a bit of a, we ain't got anything to worry about yet. Yeah, artificially angry intelligence. Yes, absolutely. Usual comment, Chris, uh, Simon, Bearball, uh, the trader. 
lots of results, not as many as last week, which is good. And anyway, thank you very much. The property forecast uh, on sale in all good news agents, £4.70, and we will be back again next week. Thank you. 